Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Hello, I'm Dr. Narjos Flores. I'm the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Today, we'll be discussing a subset of patients with lung cancer, the patients that had MedExon 14 escaping mutation. MedExon 14 escaping mutations occur in around 3 to 4% of patients with no small cell lung cancer, typically in the absence of any other mutations. We'll be discussing so many things about this subgroup of patients, including their clinical characteristics, approved therapy, adverse events, and what is down the pipeline that is very exciting. Today, I'm delighted to have two amazing guests that have experienced not only studying this biomarker, but also treating patients in the clinic. These two amazing guests will provide us with the most updated data in their experience in clinic. It is my true honor to introduce Dr. Ross Kamich. He's the Director of Thoracic Oncology at the University of Colorado. Following a PhD in Molecular Biology at the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology at Cambridge University in the UK, Dr. Kamich completed his medical training at Oxford University in the UK, and then he became the first person to double train in medical oncology and clinical pharmacology in the UK before joining the University of Colorado in 2005. Welcome, Dr. Kamich. Hi, Anjay. Thanks for the intro. Then I also had the pleasure of hosting Dr. Noemi Verwert. Dr. Verwert completed her postgraduate training and fellowship in oncology at the oncology department at Hospital Clinic Barcelona. Dr. Award completed a PhD focused on molecular lung cancer biology at the Molecular Biology Laboratory at Hospital Germán Strays y Pujol. Hopefully I pronounced that as close as I could in Barcelona and at the University of California, San Francisco. She's a clinical professor at University of Barcelona. And most recently, Dr. Award has been designated a coordinator of the Thoracic Oncology Unit at the hospital clinic in Barcelona. Welcome, Nomi. Hi, NJ. Thank you for having me today. All right. Thank you both again for joining us. I will start with Nomi. We both, we, the three of us know each other, so we're going to be referring to each other by first name. This is a conversation between friends. So back to the discussion. Uh, Nomi, what are some of the unique clinical pathologic characteristics of patients with med exome 14 escaping mutations. Is this more common in women? Are there any common size of metastasis for these patients? Sure, NJ. Pleased to start this podcast with this important topic. So as you said before, med exome 14, it's found in approximately 3 to 4% of non-small cell and cancer patients. However, in Asia, the incidence is relatively lower than in Western countries, and it is about 1%. And 
And it is very important to highlight that compared with patients with non-small cell and cancer harboring other oncogenic drivers such as ALK, EGFR, ROS, or RED, patients with MET exome 14 are typically older. Indeed, the median age is about 70 to 73 years old. They are more evenly distributed by gender and have a higher proportion of patients with smoking history compared in of what we are used to see in other oncogene addicted non-small cell lung cancer tumors. Indeed, up of half percent of the patients are smokers. The majority of the patients are found in adenocarcinoma histology, but again, unlike other drivers, can also be found in other histologies such as squamous or adenosquamous tumors, and also are very typical in one-third of cases in pulmonary sarcomatoid tumors. These clinical pathologic characteristics are very distinct, distinctive of these tumors, and we have to keep in mind this, especially when we are selecting patients for molecular screening based on the specific uh, phenotypes such as non-smoking habits or age. In my experience, these patients are diagnosed have a huge symptom burden, and indeed many of these patients require hospitalization and diagnosed for symptom control. They commonly have metastasis in lung, in pleura, pericardium, bone, and frequently they have also pleural effusions. Just to finish, comment that these patients also have high CNS involvement in, at an incidence of approximately 70 to 20%, but can reach up to 36% of incidence with a light, at lifetime. This is very important because when we are talking about MET inhibitors, we have to select those treatment-specific therapies that can highly penetrate the blood-brain barrier. Thank you, Noemi. You have made very important points. First is that these patients may have a smoking history of tobacco exposure. I think it's very important that we talk about this because any tobacco exposure should not be an exclusion criteria for genomic testing. And, and I have seen this, and you know, we need to continue to repeat the message that if it's adenocarcinoma, it needs biomarker testing. As we continue to talk about MET exome 14, I would like to ask Ross, what is the difference, and I'm coming for a place of learning, between MET amplification and polysomy? Are all MET met alterations the same? Um, that is a very good question. Okay, so the story of MET as a potential targetable oncogene in non-small cell lung cancer actually goes way back in time, even before MET-exon 14 skip mutations were described. And we knew that very rarely people would have MET fusions, which are totally actionable, they're just very rare. And then you bring up the idea of MET amplification, so increases in the number of copies of the gene. And the issue there is it's a continuous variable. Do you have two, four, six, eight, whatever? And also you can measure it in different ways. Do you measure the mean number of copies of the gene per cell? Do you divide it by something like the centromere on chromosome 17, which is where MET sits? Um, so that's called the ratio. Or then those are mostly related to kind of fish-based sort of cellular assays. Then as we get into next generation sequencing, it's the number of copies of MET relative to something. And the problem is the something varies depending on the bioinformatics. So it's a bit of a dog's dinner in terms of 
the you know how how it actually gets quantified the reality is met some level of increasing copy number of the met gene alone does produce an oncogene addicted state and it can also overlap with metaxon 14 it's not uncommon for oncogenes also to have an increasing number of copies of that oncogene um, that's been described in egfr for years for example so about 20 to 30 percent naomi correct me if i'm wrong here of medexon 14 is also amplified but obviously in those ones you can't pull apart the contribution but there are cases where there's just amplification there's no medexon 14 and some of those will actually respond to a med inhibitor too thank you ross and this is to the two of you i'm just gonna throw you a little curveball how we as we continue to learn mechanisms of resistance for other oncogenes we are learning about med amplification and EGFR as one some new case reports about med amplification in ALK after patients have been in TKIs or targeted therapy. Are we talking about the same mechanism or we're talking about different here with the de novo med amplification versus the ones developed after therapy? Um, maybe I'll take a stab at that. So you're absolutely right. I mean, I think what we've learned in oncogene-driven lung cancer is there's only a number of things that can actually drive a cancer cell. And sometimes they're the primary driver, but sometimes they're an acquired resistance mechanism. So med amplification can totally be a mechanism of acquired resistance in eg mutant lung cancer, in ALK, it's also described in ROS1. And medexon 14 also can be an acquired resistance mechanism. So they're, you know, sometimes you get the lead actor, sometimes you're the best supporting actor, but, you know, they, they all contribute. Well, I love that analogy. I think I, you may have to trademark that, Ross, because I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> so, and if I can add something yes. to Ross, it is very important when we talk about MET and we have the trainees with us and we have to explain which is the MET alteration we are facing with. It's very important to understand that the different MET alterations that, that Ross just commented are completely different. I mean, it's not the same to having MET exon 14 alteration, than MET amplification, that even MET expression. And they do not have always have to be together. As Ross commented, you can have MET amplification with MET exon 14, but for example, in the resistance setting of EGFR mutant patients, the most common uh, acquired resistance uh, mechanisms is met amplification. So very, very important when we read the reports to be sure that our molecular uh, scientist, what, what is he or she telling us? This is very, very important. That's a great point. I didn't mention net overexpression in terms of protein overexpression, which is a whole nother can of worms. So that in and of itself doesn't really predict for these driver oncogenes. I mean, it's kind of necessary, but not sufficient. Um, but in addition, as we develop antibody drug conjugates directed against MET, MET overexpression without an underlying driver oncogene may also be a targetable abnormality, but in a, in a different way as an address label to deliver a toxin to. Thank you so much. I think it's very important, you know, to continue to understand how complex lung cancer treatment and understanding lung cancer has become. Naomi, uh, along those lines, where is what else do we see med exon 14 is keeping mutations? Are these unique to lung cancer or do you see them in normal tissue? Yeah, sure, Nadish. So um, uh, MET, it's first MET, it's a physiologic gene. It's a proto-oncogene that is essential for 
embryogenic development, organogenesis, and wound healing. This is very important. And it was in 2015 that uh, it was first reported met exon 14 skipping mutation in human non-small cell and cancer tissue. But it was not later on that Dr. Franton described it in an article published in Cancer Discovery that uh, they could find also metexon 14 skipping alterations, not only in lung adenocarcinoma, which was the most common site in 4% of the cases, but also they could find um, these alterations in central nervous system tumors at the lower incidence, lower than 1%, and also in tumors of unknown primary, also in an incidence lower than 1%. But very importantly, the distribution of all the genomic or DNA genetic alterations in exome 14 did not vary significantly among the different tumor types. More recently, I have done a bit of search because I'm not an expert in all the tumor types, but I have also seen that recently, uh, metexome 14 mutations or skipping mutations have been uh, widely described in gastrointestinal malignancies in up to 10% of gastric cancer and colorectal cancer. And also in glioma, the incidence could rise to up to 40% of cases. So this is an alteration that can indeed be found in other tumor types. Thank you so much, Noemi. I think as we continue to study more and more, you know, not only lung cancer, but other malignancies to the molecular level, I think we're learning more and potentially, you know, uh, getting therapies to other um, our parts of oncology as we're, you know, we're getting now HER2 therapies from breast cancer to lung cancer. So I think, you know, sharing with others. As we move forward discussing the diagnosis of MedExon 14 skipping mutations, we know this can be challenging. First, we know that biomarker testing is unfortunately not widely used in the United States and in some low to middle income countries, there is no possibility for science to do testing. Ross, when tissue is available, right? Let's find this yeah. perfect scenario in which we got tissue, a good yeah. amount of tissue. Yeah. <laughs> what is the best way to test for this biomarker? So I, that's a really, I mean, I think we always go into it with the idea of let's imagine a perfect world and then reality dawns. And, you know, I do remote opinions around the world. And that's I find that very useful to kind of ground me to say, you know, not everybody has access to the best and the brightest. So you do have to have workarounds. But let me let me let me try and answer your question. So in a perfect world, med exon 14 skip mutations, there's about 100 different mutations. And some of them are in the intron, some of them in the exon. And we forgot to mention but how these actually work is they essentially splice out a whole region of uh, of the the protein and it's the region which encodes something called the sibyl binding domain which is essentially the expiry date on the protein and if that's not there because you know you've removed the piece of dna that codes for it and sort of joined the beads of the necklace together having spliced one out then the protein accumulates on the surface it doesn't get degraded and it auto signals so that's that's how they work but because they, you know, you can mess up that splicing in a many, many different ways. So you, the splice site can be in the exon, it can be the intron. You can use just DNA-based next-generation sequencing, and you'll find some. 
but you'll probably miss 50% of cases. And that I think is particularly iniquitous because you'll say, hey, there's nothing wrong with my assay. I found one last week, but you won't know the one you missed last week. So a DNA-based extraction should be supplemented with an RNA-based extraction and then both used in the next generation sequencing assay. And certainly some of the academic centers are doing that. Some of the commercial companies will have both DNA and RNA. And it's not either or, it's both together. Although currently foundation is one of the ones that, that doesn't have that. Um, and it just influences the sensitivity of your testing. Thank you, Ross. And I would like to add, you know, as you say in a perfect word, but sometimes that's not the case. How are your feelings about you, you and Noemi about the use of circulating tumor DNA to diagnose this subgroup of patients? Oh, so in my experience, circulating tumor DNA, it's a good technique to pick up metaxon 14 escaping alterations. We know that tissue, as Ross mentioned, it's, it's the perfect scenario, uh, but the reality is in 20 to 30% of the cases, we are not going to have enough tissue sample to perform more genomic analysis. So liquid biopsies are great. And also they have other advantages. They are less invasive and also you can get the results with faster turnaround. So the only drawback I could say for liquid biopsies, at least in Spain, is that they are not reimbursed here. So we cannot have access to this technology in all our patients to do both tissue and liquid biopsies at the same time. One important thing that Dr. Ross mentioned right now is that when we are um when we are identifying metex and 14 skipping mutations, what we want is to identify the RNA skipping section of the gene. This is very important because there are more than 500 DNA alterations identified. So uh, DNA-based approaches can be limited in their ability to capture the breadth of all these genomic alterations. And when we think about um, liquid biopsies, um, there are two that are being used. This is hybrid capture and also amplicon-based NGS. And well, uh, I could not say one, it's better than the other, but it could be possible that the sensitivity of hybrid capture NGS is a bit better than the amplicon one. Ross, I don't know if you have more experience with both. I have more experience with hybrid capture NGS. Um, I, I don't think I actually have an opinion on that. I, I think the thing with circulating DNA is it it's both good and bad. So it's good because it's so easy, it's so convenient, assuming it's reimbursed. And therefore we get, you know, I would rather have somebody doing CFDNA than nothing as a means of kind of expanding out molecular testing. But its sensitivity is such that if you don't find it, where, where I have a trouble is, you know, you'll get an oncologist who go, well, I did molecular testing, there was nothing there, but they've only done CFDNA. And that, you know, if your patient is, particularly if they're a never smoker, that for me, that's not enough. And I agree. I think, you know, it's not only about testing in general, but understanding the behinds or testing. And as I was having a conversation yesterday, and just to add to the conversation is that these patients or patients now need to be tested at the moment of diagnosis, even for early stage, because we are 
have approved therapies in the new adjuvant setting, and now we have clinical trials in the adjuvant setting for targeted therapies. What are your thoughts about testing? Should we test everyone at diagnosis? Or, you know, what do you think would be the perfect case scenario for diagnostic, not only for MedX114, for all patients with adenocarcinoma or the lung? So I have a sort of slightly schizophrenic answer. So I, 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 <laughs> I love that. I did, I did my training in Britain where it's all about, you know, cost and benefit. And so it's actually, you know, in, incredibly inefficient to test everybody for everything and to do, as we just said, you know, liquid and tissue biopsy. But if I put that to one side and I remember that I'm a physician and my duty of care is not to the health system, but to the patient, I do believe we should test everybody for everything with the exception of I don't test small cell and I don't test carcinoid. Yeah, completely, because uh, Dr. Ross uh, comments, I do think patients either in tissue and liquid must be tested up front. And this is very important because we will talk more about this later on, about the activity of these MET inhibitors. And it seems that the activity could be more or less the same in first or second line setting. So it might be possible that one physician could say, okay, as I am going to be able to give the drug in the second line, maybe I can wait to have the uh, molecular results later on. But I do think this is a danger. It's a danger because we do know that these patients have a very aggressive disease. And if you start with other therapies, such as chemotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy, maybe you have the chances or the um, the risk of losing this patient, and then they would not be able to, to be treated with the optimal drug, which is a methyrosinkinase inhibitors. I always say to my trainees that having a molecular assessment at the beginning, it's like having your road perfectly uh, identified to know what's going to be uh, the uh, optimal uh, therapeutic strategy for the patient. So in my case, I would say I prefer to have all genomic assessments performed at the beginning at diagnosis. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much to tell you. There's so much to talk about testing, but we need to move um, the discussion forward about available treatments. Uh, we Right now, we have cabmatinib was the first agent approved in May of 2020. After we learned the results of the phase two geometry trial that included 57 patients, Ross, can you walk us through some of these results and how these changed the treatment of patients with met exon 14 escaping mutation? Well, I'm probably not as well rehearsed as Naomi, who had all of the facts at her fingertips, but the, the essence is when you give a MedExon 14 skip mutant uh, a TKI, you're generally getting about a 40% response rate there. And the median progression free survival is it's not stellar. It's probably about nine months. And, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I, if I'm misremembering some of these things. One of the issues was um, with the catmatinib when they did their, uh, their treatment naive cohort, they had about a 63% response rate. And that, Seemed different. So when Tipotinib, which is the other Met Exxon 14 skip uh, mutant drug that's licensed, they didn't have much of a line of therapy effect and they had a sort of fairly consistent 40% across the road. Now, is that because there's something magical about Catmatinib that when you use it in the first line, suddenly you get a higher response rate? 
Or is the overall 40% response rate telling us there's some heterogeneity in this population and they just got lucky and they had more of whoever the magic sensitive population is in their first line cohort? And I tend to believe a little bit of the latter because I can't explain it otherwise, that there are people who respond and people who don't respond. Um, but the the thing is, you know, these tend to be older patients. So I use, even though it's a 40% response rate, I still tend to start people on the TKI if I have that information in hand. And I have no idea if I answered your question, NJ. Well, I think you, the answer, sort of the question and, um, is that, you know, target therapy is moving very fast. And we did have geometry, which is 57 patients, right? Let's talk about a few years ago when we would have been probably unthinkable to get a drug approved with a short amount of patients, but we are, you know, doing targeted trials. What are your thoughts, Ross, about, you know, these drugs are being approved with six, less than 60 patients? So I, I think that's totally fine. I mean, if you have, you know, gangbuster responses, I remember that, you know, the Ross one data set for extending the license for crizotinib was about 50 patients anyway. I think the issue with crizotinib, which doesn't apply to these other ones, is crizotinib already had a huge data, safety data set from ALK. And so just extending out the label wasn't a big deal. I think the issue is when you get drugs which are being approved and the only data set is 40 or 50 patients, they have a great response. They're also getting approved so quickly that your total number of patients for safety and for long-term safety is pretty limited. And so I think what we're finding is some of the side effects of some of these rapidly approved agents, especially in small populations, we are still in the process of discovery of side effects after the drug is out there and being used. Thank you, Ross. Uh, Noemi, any thoughts about, you know, these trials are leading to the approval? Uh, I know we're going to discuss the potinib, but any comments about these trials with lower amount of patients? Well, I completely agree with uh, Ross' uh, comments. I mean, it is very difficult to think about uh, performing a trial, phase three trial in this very small uh, subset population of patients. And when we have uh, the results of these small uh, phase two trials in which we are assessing efficacy and safety, and we do have this good overall response rate and progression free survivals, and you see these waterfall plots, and you see that the drugs work. It's very difficult to tell our patients, okay, there is this drug, but we do have to wait till the phase two trial to be approved and to give you option for to receive this drug. So I agree with Ross. I think uh, this data, even if they are a small number of patients in the studies, I think the data is so compelling that for me, it's enough to uh, start treatment with uh, these targeted therapies. Thank you, Noemi. And it's a great safe way to talk about tepotinib, the other agent that in the United States was approved in February of 2021. Noemi, can you discuss with us some of the results that led to the approval of tepotinib and the vision trial? And what are your thoughts about the trial in general? So, yes, sure. Uh, the vision is the second most important trial with MET inhibitors that have been uh, done so far. And this was a phase two trial, and uh, they tested for the efficacy and safety of chepotinib given at 500 milligrams once daily. One important thing about the vision trial that differentiates it from geometry trial is that in the vision trial, they had 
two ways of testing for the metics and for the skipping. It was tested centrally, either in liquid or in tissue biopsy. And the first data that was published in New England Journal of Medicine, they included less than 100 patients. And the responses, as uh, Dr. Ross mentioned, were very similar to tapotinib. There were, uh, there was an overall response rate of 46%. And uh, this one very important thing is that the response or the predictive value of the metaxone 14 skipping was the same either if it was tested or identified in tissue or in liquid, which is reassuring for liquid biopsies when we are using it to identify these type of alterations. And more recently this year in World Conference of Lung Cancer 2022, uh, Dr. Michael Thomas presented the results of the cohort C. That was like the confirmatory cohort uh, of Court A, and they presented data for a total of 161 patients, which is quite a lot number of patients. And they demonstrated that the results were very similar and they are, were comparable to cohort one with an overall response rate of 55%. And one important thing, just mentioning what uh, Dr. Ross commented, uh, that it seemed that in patients that were, were naive, the responses were a bit higher. They were 62%. So maybe this is something that it is in line what, with which was observed in the geometry trial. Thank you, Noemi, for breaking down these two, the, the trial. And just to recap, Tepotinib and Capmatinib, they're both approved in the United States for patients with med exome 14 skipping mutations. Something that has changed, even for me, because I trained when there was only three targeted therapies, which is ALK, ROS1, and EGFR, is that aversive and have changed. Um, I remember taking classes and, you know, all these side effects have changed. But crisotinib has been around for a while, like Ross mentioned. One of the challenges that I think is very important to uh, bring attention to is that you can see an increase in creatinine and some other adverse events with crisotinib that are very unique. And Ross was one of the first people to de describe this. And why I'm bringing this to the podcast is because we can spend a lot of time doing other type of research, but when we care for patients, it was is when one of these things can be observed, particularly after the drugs are approved. Ross, can you share with us all these observations around crisotinib adverse events that you describe? Yeah, so um, the creatinine one, that was kind of fun. So we had an index patient because it always starts with one patient who had mildly elevated creatinine, had a cisplatin beforehand, and they were ALK positive. And, you know, this is whilst ALK was still being discovered. And we put them on crisotinib and... The, the clue was two things happened. One was there was a dramatic rise, like a straight line up of their creatinine, and then it plateaued. So it, it didn't keep going up. It just went up, and then it was a flat line. And then because he had impaired renal function to begin with, that meant his creatinine was about two point something. So we held the drug, and it went straight down again, and then plateaued. And we and we played around, which is so obvious in retrospect but you know every time we put him on the drug at half dose or alternate days this kind of zigzag would happen with his creatinine and we spoke to our 
colleagues in renal medicine and they went, duh, this is so obviously an effect on creatinine secretion. So to remind all of us, creatinine, you know, most of it is filtered, about 80% is filtered through your kidneys and about 20% is directly secreted into your urine. And so if you have a drug which interferes with that secretion, so drugs like cimetidine and trimethoprim are well known, um, then what happens is you, 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 you drop your creatinine clearance by about 20 to 25%. And that was exactly what we were seeing. And then we analyzed that in a larger cohort of patients. And I think the median drop in estimated glomerular filtration rate was about 23% off the top of my head. And it was largely reversible when you stopped the drug. And it's really interesting. The same thing has been seen with capmatinib. I don't know if it's been looked at for tipotinib, but I suspect it's a met effect. Um, or it's something to do with the shape of the molecules if they look similar. And so the, the reason it matters is if you are thinking of changing some other medication based on the apparent rise in creatinine, you need to know you might be being misled by that creatinine value. And what you have to do is you have to do a non-creatinine-based assessment of renal function. And so, for example, there's something called cystatin C, which when we did studies didn't shift at all. That's so extremely fascinating because sometimes we believe we know something and then we don't until the drugs actually get to the market. And we were talking right before we uh, started recording about another effect uh, related to male participants. And as some of our listeners know, I'm all about sexual health and lung cancer. Ross, <laughs> can you, you just have, you have to bring it into everything, don't you? <laughs> I got I got to do it. Like yeah. I was just talking about yesterday. I gave a talk in Yale with a slide that had all different types of bulba. So let's talk about testosterone and MedX14 then. <laughs> well, so let, that's it, it started with a crizotinib story. And again, started with one patient, one of my patients who, you know, ALK positive tends to occur in kind of younger people. And this guy was in his 30s and he was single. And I remember I got a I got an email from him late on a Friday night explaining that something was happening on his latest romantic encounter, which had never happened to him before. And, you know, I, I had to fix it. So things were not performing as they should do. And, you know, this is a good looking young guy with a beard. And, um, you know, he didn't look like he had low testosterone. And so I checked a whole bunch of other things. And then he said, I've got to give him the credit. He said, you need to check my testosterone. And I was going, sure thing. Okay. And I checked it and it was incredibly low and it was like light bulb moment. And then we checked it internally and testosterone was low below the low normal for eight, no, a hundred percent of our men on crizotinib. And then I recruited some friends around the world and it was low in 84% of men in that kind of international study. And uh, the manufacturers of Crizotinib said that's all complete nonsense because, of course, their drug is licensed. They don't want to hear any bad news. And they published their data showing it was low in 1%. But the way they get their 1% was their denominator was every patient in the study, both men and women, and whether they'd had testosterone checked or not. So um, I still think we're right. And that was just obfuscation on the part of someone trying to protect their drug. So I'm fascinated to know if, and we know it's not an ALK effect because it doesn't happen with the other ALK inhibitors. So I'm fascinated to know if it's a MET effect and whether if we look with capmatinib and tapotinib, we might see that too. I think that's fascinating because we're also seeing agents that we're using now for EGFR that also have a MET inhibitor effect. Noemi, I thought you were going to add something. No, I was going to say that I was trying to recall if any of my patients had complained about this, and I don't think I have had one. Well, <laughs> so, 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 <laughs> so, 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 NJ, this works into NJ's area of expertise. So, one of the things is 
men don't volunteer this um and so you you have to directly ask and that and and well actually that's not true um when we did the international study the french who clearly like to talk about this a lot were very upfront about you know yes they had noticed that erectile dysfunction was very common in their patients but i think in the more you know conservative and awkward places like britain you know we didn't routinely ask this <laughs> And and thank you. I think we need to, you know, make it a common um ask about sexual health. Like we ask our patients with EGFR, they're in EGFR therapy if they have diarrhea. I think every patient that is in EGFR directed therapy gets asked if they have diarrhea. Along those lines, Noemi, you know, we train, so not all trained with everybody was like, oh, side effects so uh, chemotherapy and I have to learn about immunotherapy side effects because immunotherapy go approved when I was in the middle of my training. But with targeted therapy, there's so many different side effects that you know providers in the community may not be used to. And this is also unique to MET inhibitors. Now, me, what is your experience? What is your the side effects that you have more challenge m- more challenges? dealing with in the clinic and what are your recommendations to the providers uh, and patients listening to us? So I could say that probably we all could agree that one of the most challenging side effects with MET inhibitors is the toxicity or, or the class effect, which is um, edema. Yeah. This is very challenging. And I have to say that because it's a side effect that it's uh, seen overall and more or less the incidence is the same um, irrespective of the methyrosinkinase inhibitor you are using. And it's about, I could say, 50% of patients have a rate of edema, but grade 3, it's observed in 10-12% of patients. And this is important because at the beginning I said that these patients tend to be older isn't it? They are not 40, 60% 60 years old. They are 70, 75 years old. And this is something that really, really impairs quality of life of patients. And this edema, it has early time to onset. It appears quickly at the first month of treatment. It's more common, the older the patient is, the higher the risk of having this edema. In Asian patients, I do not have Asian patients, but it's important to comment here that in Asian patients, it's more common and it's very difficult to manage. It requires those reductions in 20% of patients, interruptions in 23% of patients, and up to 4% of patients have to interrupt treatment because they have edemas. And so I think it's very important. One thing that we started in our center is um educational program from our specialized nurse. This is very important uh, to guide, to do a proactive monitoring. And um, the nurses, as I said, have a key role on, on it. Um, I could say, can we give um, supportive treatments as, as such as um, the plective therapies for this edema? So in my experience, it doesn't work. Uh, even if you treat them with these, uh, the plective therapies, the edema stays the same. So it's much better to um, 
interrupt treatment. It's much better to interrupt treatment, uh, to make sure treatment holidays or even does reduce the therapy in order to allow the patient to continue with the treatment with a good quality of life. I have to say I have a struggle with the edema or swelling. Um, diuretics don't really help. I think what really help that I have noticed is the things that are harder, right? The compression stockings, physical therapy for the edema, uh, Ross, how do you find anything that has been helpful with these edema? I had a patient that gained 20 pounds yeah. of just edema. Yeah, I mean, I think almost as Naomi said, it's this cruel twist of fate that these mutations tend to occur in older population who might have edema issues anyway. And then we give them a drug that gives them worse edema. But yes, my it's physical things, compression stockings, lymphedema massage are mostly what we've tried. Plus, occasionally you just have to hold the drug and let it settle. I think there are... There are many theories as to as to what the cause is. One is, you know, you block MET and then there's a compensatory increase in the ligand HGF and it cross-reacts with some other receptors and causes kind of capillary leak. There are people doing studies, for example, there's a planned swog study where they're adding in to capmatinib um, an antiangiogenic to see if that can uh, lessen it. But we'll just have to wait and see. But it, I, I mean, it is a problem. We've tried spironolactone, Naomi. I don't know if you've. I don't know that that was a difference between night and day. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think you know. Unfortunately, during the winter here, it's easier to ask patients to wear the stockings, but in the summer, I think less compliance. Uh, but I prepare these patients. I think it's good to prepare them so they know, uh, because a lot of patients may have lost a lot of weight with the cancer itself. So they're gaining weight back. And I remember some of my patients saying, oh, I'm getting better. And I was like, hmm, more than better, you're getting swollen. So yeah. let's see what we can do. Yeah. Um, yeah, I tell the patients to weigh themselves. But you're right. If they'd lost weight, they might get excited about the weight gain, even if it's just fluid weight. There is so much to talk about. And I can't believe we have been talking already for 40 minutes. <laughs> um be, we're almost coming to the end, but I have two questions I want to ask as very important. So, Ross, any exciting data about MET exon 14 escaping mutation that may be coming our way? So one of the things we mentioned right at the beginning about MET protein expression and antibody drug conjugates. So there are several companies developing, you know, antibody drug conjugates directed against MET. And uh, the million dollar question is, well, so is MedX on 14 skip a good thing or a bad thing to direct it for? You could argue that if the internalization domain is somehow affected, that might be a really bad thing to give an ADC to. Or it may be that somehow this still works. Interestingly enough, the preclinical data on how some of the ADCs were developed were actually done with some MedX on 14 skip cell lines. So I think it's going to work, whether it's going to work better or worse than patients without those mutations, um, I think there's some data coming out at AACR, which we'll be able to see. So I think expanding the portfolio of what you can give beyond just TKIs for this class of, uh, of, of mutations, I think is going to be exciting. Thank you so much. And Noemi, rumor has her, mostly my co-host, that you recently re received a large grant about molecular uh, analysis and evaluations in patients with lung cancer. Can you share, we, we also know that, inciting proposal and study? Wow. So thank you so much for asking me that. That means that you are uh, looking at Twitter very often. <laughs> thank you, Nargius, for giving me the opportunity to share our, our research program. So 
It is very nice because our interest in medics on 14 skipping mutations started a few years ago when we started using uh, 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 RNA uh, multiplexer technique, which is nanostring encounter, which uh, just or specifically looks at RNA. That was very nice because we were not looking at RNA by that time. And we started seeing a lot or having a lot of metaxone 14 skipping patients. So that gave us the opportunity to gain more knowledge on the disease, to start taking samples, and also try to uh, prepare primary cultures. So uh, until now, research in this field has mainly focused on understanding the genomic alterations that can drive primary or acquiring resistance. And preliminary data of our lab indicates that beyond DNA and on and off target mutations, there might be other biological processes such as cell plasticity mediated by EMT that might also have a role. So our idea is to study how the tumor adapts to the therapy, integrating both genomics and transcriptomics. And depending on what we find, we also aim to explore new treatment sequencing approaches with MET, a new MET inhibitors to explore ways of sequencing and overcoming acquired resistances. Thank you, Naomi. And we can wait to hear all the data that may be coming out and all your experience doing this because everything we do is to improve the care of all patients with lung cancer. There is so much to talk about, but we are about out of time. So I would like to thank you all for listening. And especially I would like to thank Dr. Kamich and Dr. Verwar for making the time to join us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. A pleasure. And that's it for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, in which we break down MedExon 14 from the diagnosis all the way to future research. We hope that you tune in in the first and third Tuesdays of every month to give us a listen. You can engage with us on Twitter at ISLC or our website, ISLC.org. And we are in a Spotify now. We are becoming Generation Z. We are in a Spotify and we're so excited. So thank you for tuning and see you in another episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, ISLC.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 